Welcome to Amazon Legends, where we have real stories about making it big on Amazon. Our guests are CEOs of large companies and entrepreneurs who became power sellers, also providers specializing in helping sellers, aggregators that acquire sellers, and former Amazonians will give us an insight from behind the scenes. Here is your host, Nick Urison. Welcome to another episode of Amazon Legends. My next guest today is a finance and private equity professional, but he got bitten by the, the data bug. So since he was dealing with numbers, he thought well, it was more meaning to numbers. So today he's the founder and CEO of Nozzle, which is a provider of tools that help Amazon sellers understand their customers to grow their business, which we will get into in a minute. This conversation, you are going to love because I've been searching for someone to have this conversation with, <laughs> and here I have the man to do this because he is the one who built the platform and everything else. So, plus he knows how to use it. So, uh, when he's not working uh, with numbers, he loves jazz and progressive rock, <laughs> basketball, and soccer, where he likes watching the numbers. Again, he's watching, and you know, in fact, for me also, one of the things that I'm fascinated with all the baseball numbers, you know, how, how yeah, they are doing. Exactly. <laughs> so with that, everybody, meet my guest, Raoul Klein. Welcome to the show, Raoul. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks for the very kind introduction. It's great to be here, Nick. Very much looking forward to the conversation. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, this will be a lot of fun, and uh, I'm sure uh, listeners will learn quite a bit from it. So... So Amazon is a game of numbers. It's all about numbers and you look at the numbers and then you make decisions. Ideally, in any business, you look at numbers and you should look at numbers and make decisions rather than gut calls. But uh, how you use them is different. And on Amazon, it's, it's especially uh, key to your success. So tell us tell us your take on this. What, what, what do you do? Yeah, so effectively for us, we focus on a set of metrics which are customer behavior related. Um, and we think that Amazon does a pretty good job of giving you skew or ASIN data. Yeah. But really to understand a business, an e-commerce business, you really have to understand your customers. And, and what do I mean by their behavior? It's more about um, how often they come back, how often they're buying, are they buying the same products again? How long does it take between all these orders? All those sort of things, because that's what helps you build a brand. Um, and you know, it's your most valuable assets as a brand, right? Are those diehard customers, those coming back again and again, or your most valuable asset as, a, as an e-commerce brand? Uh, but Amazon doesn't give you that data. Um, and that's that's basically what, what we do. We provide a suite of dashboards that um, shines a light on all the customer behavior. What does the data look like? And what decisions should you be taking to improve your business? Okay, so as far as the, the, the academic approach, so to speak, so uh, what we're looking at here is from our conversation, I remember two data points that are key to decision making. Can you share with us what those data points are? And then also share just briefly, because we're going to dig into this, uh, that how you get that information how you calculate it yeah sure so the the two i would say the most two most important metrics would be uh this idea of um, customer lifetime value and customer acquisition cost so 
how do you calculate the customer lifetime value? Yeah, so I guess first sort of a definition of, of it is how profitable is an average customer over time, right? And, and we're talking about profitable here, not average sales per customer, which is useful, but not the most useful. Um, but if you understand the fundamental business equation, the way we like to look at it is that if you understand how profitable a customer is over time, it answers a very, very fundamental question, which is the second metric. Um, and that is how much you can afford to pay to acquire a customer, right? Those are two sides of the same coin there. If you know that a customer, an average customer is worth you know, $50 to you after three months and $70 after six months, that means you can now um, afford to pay $50 to acquire someone if you want to break even in, in you know, that six-month period or whatever it is. And so looking at those two things in tandem, um, we think is a very fundamental business equation that ultimately gets overlooked by a lot of Amazon sellers. Uh, clearly, you need to sell products that lend themselves to repeat orders, right? If you're selling uh, very high-priced furniture, sure, you might wait 10 years before the next order comes. So it's not going to be all that useful. But certainly, if you're in certain categories, some very big categories and competitive ones like pets and health and beauty and food and drink and supplements, household cleaning liquids, anything like that, where there's naturally going to be more than one order, you would think, uh, this should become quite a fundamental uh, metric that you should optimize for um, over time. Yeah. Okay. So this is where... The conversation is going to get interesting for especially listeners um, because we are all business owners, right? So at the end of the day, when all is said and done, how much money you had in your pocket at the beginning of the day and how much money you are left with at the end of the day? We want to pay the bills Agreed. and then put away some money. Okay. So therefore... The profit definition is different for everybody. Uh, yeah. When I say it's different for everybody, it depends on who, what the person is doing. If you make no profit, that means you're breaking even. That means whatever you're collecting is paying off your expenses. Yeah. If you go to a PC agency, to them, break even point is whatever you generated in sales. Yes. Is, but that's not the case. So. No. Define for us, in your yeah. case, yeah. calculation of lifetime value. Yes. What is the definition of profit? Yeah, so we analyze literally every single order that goes through your account. And so if we identify somebody as a unique user, we can discuss if you want how we do that. But let's say um, it's customer a unique ID, right? So customer number one, two, three, four. Um, and this, this customer buys a product we will know that this customer bought this product at this time um, and shipped it to this you know, particular address. And we will also, our customers will upload their cost of goods sold, right? The COGS data. And then we've got the Amazon fees. And so effectively for us, when we're talking about profit here, we're talking, we're trying to get as close as possible to the, A, the actual price paid by the customer. So we're going to subtract out any discounts and coupons and you know, all those sorts of things. Obviously all the sales tax or VAT and you know, all those things too. Then we're going to subtract out the COGS data. Then we're going to subtract out all the Amazon fees. And that's pretty much what you're left with um, in terms of, of profit, right? And so even if you bought in one order, you bought three different products, we're going to do that for all three of them, right? And then we're going to say, okay, the profit on this order was, I don't know, $15, let's say. And then you come back and you buy again three months later and you just buy one product. 
um, then we're going to do the same calculation again. And we're literally doing this for every single customer that's ever bought from you on Amazon. And we're going to be taking, you know, an average or whatever it is. So how many of them uh, come back after one month or two months or three months? We're literally, what is the average now, for customer number one, two, three, four, what was their entire journey with us over the last two years, three years, whatever it may be for customer number ABCD, right? A different customer, what was their whole journey? And we're literally going to be taking, um, you know, averages of all those, those journeys to get a sense of what actually happens across your entire customer base over time. Okay. So let's dissect that a little bit also to clarify. Yeah. One customer buys one item. When does this calculation start? Because when you say lifetime, yeah. uh, do you wait before you include some of those customers in the calculation or what is that minimum period or is there such a thing? No, I mean, it's literally as far back as Amazon's APIs allow us to go. So anyone who connects to Amazon's APIs is allowed to go back two years, right? And so we go back two years, we get, as I say- What about new customers? Well, if somebody signed up yesterday, it's uh, coming in for the first time for you. So immediately yes. you establish a lifetime value? Well, um, there's going to be in any in any brand, no matter how good you are, there's always going to be a significant chunk of people that just buy once and that's it, right? You never hear from them again. Uh, but that should count in the average, right? It's obviously going to bring the average down. But if right, you're talking right. about what is the average customer do, sure, 30, 40, 50, 60% of them will just buy once and that's just life. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's that's an important part of the calculation. You can't just exclude people who just bought once from you. Um from from an average calculation, right? There are an important right. weights in that average. Um, so yeah, um, you can talk about more sophisticated things around, we are very big on something called cohort analysis, right? And this is something that I think if people have used Google Analytics or things like that over time, they, they kind of popularize um, cohort analysis. And, and the idea there is you can split up your customer base over time. So let's say uh, you want to take all the people that bought in January of 23, and let's say there were a thousand people that were new to brand in January 23. And you want to track them over time. So anytime one of those 1000 people buy again, some of them might buy one month, some of them might wait three months to buy again. Some of them might never buy again. Um, you want to track that as a cohort to see what happens to them over time. What happens to just that cohort average, right? And so maybe that's $20 after three months, right? The average of those thousand customers is going to be $20 over three months. But then what you, the power of this is that you can compare that to another cohort. Let's say people who were new to brand in February, one month later, right? They just converted for the first time in February. And you do the exact same analysis there. But now you notice that the, these, um, this cohort is actually only worth $15 after three months. That's $5 less than, than the January cohort at the same point in time, right? At the three-month mark. Now, why is that? What happened? Are they less loyal? Are there just fewer people coming back and buying again? Is it because you gave massive discounts um, and therefore the lifetime value actually dropped? Remember, we're doing this on profit here, not on um, not, not on sales. And so you're starting off on a pretty bad footing if you've given a huge discount. They're obviously not going to be as profitable. So there could be various reasons. But what this actually starts doing is giving you a sense of what um, the evolution of your customer base, right? Are my older customers more or less loyal than my newer customers or or if i made a price uh, change i increased or decreased the price what actually happened did i get a whole lot more new to brand customers are they more or less loyal 
right? And so it's actually a very powerful analysis for, um, it's quite hard to do this, I guess, without like an, a visual, because it's very visual to see how this right, whole thing right. works. But the, the takeaway, I guess, is, um, you know, a, a lifetime value in and of itself. If I had to just say to you, hey, Nick, did you know that for your brand, um, the lifetime value is $100? That is not that useful to you. But what are you meant to do with that? Does that mean, okay, you can spend $100 to acquire a customer, but you might wait five years for that to break even, right? It's not, and in which case it's not that useful. And so when we talk about LTV, we should always be talking about a, an associated time frame, right? It's your three-month lifetime value. It's your 12-month lifetime value, right? And because that's it's just much more useful to know what that progression looks like. And then secondly, we're always talking about, um, what are the trends in that customer base, right? Is that is that LTV increasing or decreasing, right? According to this cohort analysis, are my newer customers more or less valuable than my older customers? Or we've had people make a change in their accounts. So for instance, they've embarked on some remarketing campaign or they've made a price change or they're doing some coupons or I don't know, Prime Day or you know all that, that whole thing. How do you actually measure the effects of these things? You need a cohort analysis to do that because you need to say, these people were exposed to some sort of change right? I increased my price. Now, what actually happens? I need to track, you know, three months, six months down the line to see what happens and compare that to the older cohorts to see whether actually this is this has worked. And what we've worked with a lot of our um, customers has, has been on, on specifically price, pricing, right? We've actually said, well, you know, you've actually got a bit of room here to increase your price. Um, and we've noticed that there's not really much of a trade-off in terms of new to brand customers. Obviously, their lifetime value has increased, right? Because you've increased your price, your margins are better, right? profit per customer, all that sort of stuff. Um, and your customer retention rate, we can talk about what that is, but um, your customer retention rate doesn't suffer either, right? It doesn't really affect the number of people coming back and buying again. So I know I've, I've spoken a lot about a real deep yeah. dive into all of this well, stuff, but yeah. So, okay. So let's unpack a few things. So first of all, as far as the the length of time is you are defining three month lifetime value, six month lifetime. Yes. So you are measuring them separately. That means you're looking at the kind of time frame that that the, that number is associated with. Yes. Um, is that if you are measuring three month uh, lifetime value, is that three month shifting all the time, or is it just uh, from the first purchase? Well, if you're doing a cohort analysis, it's always going to be from the first purchase. Um, so, you know, as I say, we can roll it all up into some big average for the whole brand over two years sort of thing, which is useful, I guess. But if you really want to know what actions to take and drill, you need to drill down. So we would always say um, it's a three month LTV from the first purchase date, because that's what the cohort analysis will do. And what another big thing where we're measuring is, you know, what happens to this, uh, the three month, let's say that what happens to the three month LTV, right? Uh, for the January cohort, it was $20. For the February cohort, it was $15. For the March cohort, it's gone back up to $22, right? And so like you're actually seeing the trends in this lifetime value and you're mapping that against what changes you made in the account um, to see what the effects are. I mean, relatedly, we we, we can talk about other like things around um, like a 90-day retention rate, which is quite a common metric, I think, in like D2C type e-commerce businesses, which is to say, of all the people who buy for the first time, how many of them are going to buy again in the next 90 days, right? And how many of them are going to buy in the next 180 days? Now, how do you decide 
what period is good for you? Like, what, you know, I'm just using 90 here. Like, okay, but that's kind of arbitrary. Um, the, we, what, what we would say is uh, we've got the data to say, how long does it take between the first and the second order? Right. What's the distribution of, of orders? Some people are going to do some in the first seven days. Some people are going to do days 30 to 60. But roughly what we would say is when about 80% of the people who would have bought twice have already done so, that's the purchase cadence, right? Like that's sort of the time period. And generally speaking, if you're talking about food and drink, you know, and supplements and things like that, a 90-day period for most brands, you're going to have covered off about 80% of those repeat orders. Um, perhaps to illustrate this point, I've got a sort of counter example, which is we have a customer that um, sells uh, water filters and they only sell multi-packs, right? And so people are only expected to buy once a year. And so looking at something like a 90-day lifetime value or a 90-day retention rate makes no sense because people are, are just not expected to buy, right? It only makes sense to look at this at a, when people are expected to buy again. And in this case, it's 12 months, right, as an extreme example. <laughs> well, I mean, two major takeaways from this, this uh, part of the conversation is, first and foremost, there is no such thing as a standard lifetime value measurement uh, or expectations, mainly because the answer is it depends. It depends on the category. What kind of products are you selling? Yes. Uh, yes. I, I, as you were talking, I was thinking myself, what is it Absolutely. that I buy several times from the same seller and you know what came to mind? Pistachio <laughs> nuts. So I sell it on Amazon, <laughs> and I fantastic. buy it all the time. And yeah. I, and I buy. Uh, they they have it in uh, one pound, two pound, and five pound bags. And I usually buy the five pound bag. And yeah. so it's not so much the size of the bag, but it's usually the the bigger bag. But of course, that means that it's much longer in between purchases. Exactly. Exactly. So. So the bottom line is depending on your category and within that category, depending on your skew, every seller must decide for themselves yeah. how they will measure their lifetime. Yes. What yes. would make sense? It's perhaps not so much how much they will measure the LTV, but what time frame makes yes, sense. Yes, that's what I meant. Yes, that, yes. that's what I meant. It's the, yeah. it's the time frame thing. So, yeah. for instance, our tool will also give you the information around what people buy next, right? So people who first buy product A and they buy again from you, are they buying product A again or are they buying, you know, products B, C, and D? Um, and that could be a variation. It could be your example. They start off with one pound and then go to the five pound. Or it could be in health and beauty, for instance, there's a lot mm -hmm. of um, just cross-selling, right? They start off with hand cream, then they go to face cream. Right. And so that's not, not a variation. That's just literally, you know, something different. Whereas stuff like, let's say, supplements, um, we would have people perhaps just starting off on a 30-day supply of supplements. But by the second or third order, you know, they like it and they've gone to the 120-day supply of supplements, you know, stuff like that. Um, and yeah. so, you know, looking at each individual brand needs to understand how often is that happening um, and therefore adjust that time window that you should evaluate the LTB. Okay, so the second thing that I picked up in the conversation that's to me is very important is what is it that's happening at specific times? Yes, that will trigger because it's uh, if you're doing nothing and it's just a listing sitting there, that's one thing you want to know that that January and February and March, whatever, yeah. those are yeah. the things. The second, uh, or 
if you're running a, a promotion and if it's a, a, these are things that are I had a, an Amazon former Amazonian on the show right. and uh, those listening great guy his episode already came out his name is Elvis and he shared with me some of the terminology Amazon people would always use right and one phrase applies here. They call it the controllable input. In other words, what is it that, yeah. that you can do? I so like that. you must record your controllable inputs. Yes. And then factor that into your um, analysis. In yeah. addition, yeah. some of the inputs are not controllable. For example, Valentine's Day, Mother's Day, Father's Day, if you're selling items, right? So it yeah. is so important to factor those events into the analysis so that you can get Agreed. a good sense of, you know, when you that when you do that cohort analysis, of course, you know, there will be a difference between a February uh, batch and the July batch because February had Valentine's yeah. Day. And if, yeah. if uh, so things like that, right? Agreed. And, and I, I love that. I love that phrase. Um, I mean, kind of two points for me on this. Number one is, the lifetime value, we always describe it as an output metric, right? I mean, it's, it's again, if I had to just give you an LTV, okay, it's nice conceptually, it's profit per customer at the three-month mark, at the six-month mark. But if you start getting into like, how do I use this metric to improve my business or what levers can I pull to actually influence this number, then you got to start talking about, you know, pretty much what that phrase is, right? You got to start talking about input metrics because an LTV is the result of all the other stuff that you're doing right or wrong in the business, right? And so I would always think about LTV um, as kind of three three separate major um, categories of, of things that you can, that, that influence it. Number one is going to be how many people come back and buy again, right? An obvious one, which is customer retention rate. So that's mm. clearly a, a really important one. Number two is how many people are coming back in that specific timeframe, right? That Because again, you're off to a three month LTV or a six month LTV. The third thing, is um, is is the margins ultimately, right? Because you can have somebody buying from you literally every single day, but your lifetime value is not going to grow, right? Because this is on a profit <laughs> basis. If your margins are zero, your LTV is not going to grow because this is a profit calculation. So again, then if you break it up and you think about, okay, how do I increase retention? Right, let's talk about the ways in which we can run some experiments to try and do that, right? And the various ways of trying to do that on Amazon. If you want to talk about trying to get people to buy instead of buying every six months, let's try to get that number down, right? Let's try to get that number to five or four or whatever it may be. And so that's things about cross-selling and catalog selection and, you know, three things you can do to, to help improve that. Um, on the margin side, that's going to be a lot tougher to do, right? Especially in this environment, how do we improve your margins? Well, you know, that's that's uh, going to take a long time and and, and, and that's, yes. so there's less fewer things you can do on that side. I, I totally get that. But but that's the way to deconstruct the lifetime value like and, and then break it down into... That's what are the retention levers and you know all that sort of stuff. So, so I think that's that's really important on your um, sort of the on, on what's controllable though. What's really interesting, and I love talking about this, is the when you talk about Valentine's Day or any of these sort of big event, Prime Day, Black Friday, whatever it may be. You know, it turns out for about forty percent of our customer base, it's actually not worth doing any discounting at all. Don't do any discounting, and so the reasons are 
Um, and this this part is controllable, right? This is one of the very few levers, I guess, you have on, on these big days is do I discount or not? And if so, by how much? Uh, we've run lots of experiments. We've got lots of data on this. But if you're in one of these categories where um, you have a lot of repeat orders, there are a bunch of things that are going against you on these days. Number one is purely just on the customer acquisition cost side. It is much more expensive to acquire a new customer because CPCs are, are much higher, right? Number two is in terms of lifetime value, well, you're starting off on a pretty bad footing because you've given them a steep discount anyway, right? You're probably somewhere closer to break even, probably hardly making any profit at all. Um, number three, a huge chunk of these, these new to brand customers um, are deal hunting, right? So typically what happens is your customer retention rate drops a lot for people who were new to brand on Prime Day because they're just deal hunting. Um, and so that's obviously really bad for lifetime value. And so your LTV actually decreases a lot. Um, you also get, these are sort of second order or, or more minor effects, but these are also not good things. You'll get existing customers that would have bought on full price buying at a discount. And in extreme cases, we've seen we've seen existing customers buying bulk on a discount, which is obviously not what you want. Um, so yeah, you've got all these sort of things that are counting against you. Um, but there's one very big factor which can more than cancel out all of this, which is simply you get so many uh, neuter brands through the door that you would happily trade off some retention rates and some LTV because in pure gross profit terms, the math still works out, right? But it's not clear. It's not clear. And that's sort of the deep dive, you know, uh, that, that, that I think people need to do to get a little bit savvier around this. Um, and, and, and what level of discounting or should you not even do it or, you know, that kind of thing. So again, analyzing prime day, um, you know, people always, analyze their prime days of like what happened during those two days, right? This is the amount of sales and all these kind of metrics. And it's like, well, we view them in a way as not vanity metrics, but they're not, they're not the most important metrics. What the most important metrics are, we have to wait two more months to see, right? We have to wait for what happened three months after prime day, right? Like how many of those people, what, what is the quality quote unquote of those customers? Right and, and and is it and how how does the lifetime value compare to previous cohorts? You know that kind of thing. Yeah, sorry, it's a bit of a tangent on on, on all that, but I think that's quite an interesting sort of finding. To all my listeners, how would you like to boost your Amazon sales by up to six hundred percent? That means you must have a winning product detail page. Mindful Goods crafts product pages that pop. They create marketers ensure your products aren't just another face in the crowd, but they stand out and sell. From SEO-optimized copy to scroll-stopping visuals, they've got your back. And for a limited time, my listeners get $100 off a brand story service. Elevate your Amazon game with Mindful Goods. Visit www.mindfulgoods.co forward slash legends now. And enter the code Amazon Legends to receive your $100 off. You are uh, a numbers person. And in terms of what numbers impact and and what are the, the events that surround those numbers. And so, therefore, yeah. you have a very good understanding of how to utilize those particular days and events yes. or whether it's controllable or external. Uh, so, uh, one thing that I will say as a 
as a, as part of the consideration for monitoring the numbers for those peak days is purely to get a sense of inventory replenishment in the future. Right. Yeah. Because yeah, yes, you may. So I mean, really, I never thought about it that way. Right? But when you put it the way you put it, <laughs> you really don't want any of these peaks because they or fabricated peaks because yeah. they are hurting you in the long run. And yeah. you don't want that. It's, uh, it makes total sense. Um, yeah. Okay. I, I want to just go back a little bit because I want uh, some clarification on a couple of things. And then I want to move on to the customer acquisition cost aspect sure. of it. calculation of lifetime value. First of all, just so that we are clear, this is a dollar value. It's not percentage because some, right. some metrics are percentage. So dollar right. value. And yeah. the calculation is not per order. This is no. per customer. Correct. So it's per important. customer throughout their entire life, their entire journey with you, right? So, so they might have bought once and never again. Some of them might have bought once and then six months later bought again. And it could be a different product, right? It's literally every, every, every touch point they've had in the journey with you on Amazon. Yeah. And, and then you break that up into three months, lifetime, six months, and, and so yeah. on and so forth uh, yeah. for every customer. But the, the important thing here for those of our, those who are listening, uh, that they need to get into separating the orders per customer ID in order to measure this if they want to do it themselves. And then it gets complicated because then you've got this relationship situations between transactions. Uh, but nevertheless, so uh, take the the gross sales, whatever the top line is, minus the cost of goods sold. That's the landed cost of the item. Minus yeah. Amazon's commission. Minus yeah. Amazon FBA fees. If yeah. it's FBM, now you need to pull order by order whatever your shipping cost was. Yeah. And then after that, it's either the FBA yeah. or the FBM cost. Yeah. And the, what is left is... The is the actual profit that you made on that order? Yeah. The one thing, the one thing I would add though is that you, you, it's not just the gross sales. It's you want to subtract out any discounts or coupons and all that sort of stuff. As yes, well. yes, yes, yes. Of course, yes. Yeah. The, yeah. Gross sales minus the yeah. co uh, any cost of that particular transaction. Um, okay. Now comes the other bits and pieces. Uh, tell me if they are considered never or elsewhere or whatever. One is the easiest one is other bits and pieces like storage costs, this, that, the other, or you don't really include them in this calculation, right? Um, we can, we can include them. We have had customers. I mean, you know, ultimately it also comes to a point of materiality, right? I'm a, I'm a numbers person. I'm a precise person, I guess, but I'm also a pragmatist, right? Like, is it actually worth the effort? If for instance, um, your lifetime value is $20 without the storage costs, after three months, and then it goes to $20 and five cents or, <laughs> you know, after three months, once you put it in, yeah. it's not going to change the business decision you're making right at the end of the day. And so there's always this, like, could we be more accurate? Okay. Probably. Is it worth the effort? Is it actually going to change the business decision? Not probably not. not. And therefore not worth the effort. Right. What about refunds? Yeah, that's important. That's definitely important because there's certain there's certain categories and things like that, like clothing and that, that have higher refund rates than the normal, right? And that could that could absolutely 
materially change the um, the LTV, especially on a cohort basis. Because if there are issues around the quality of the product, or I don't know, all, all sorts of things like that, it's important. So uh, refunds are material. I would say going around the edges around storage costs, unless you unless you got you know you're in a particular category that where there's something very very large storage costs or there's a specific reason i would say probably ignore that but refunds refunds would be important so that means then whatever your net sales are after discounts or yeah. anything yeah. then you want to discount that by your typical refund rate and then and then bring in the cost of goods sold. yeah you can you can discount it by the refund rate or you know if you've got actually access to the orders api you'll know you'll know that it's a refund. So it's not that you're applying a refund rate. It literally just says like, this is a refund against this order ID and you can just subtract it out. Oh, but, I see. But, okay. but yeah, I mean, uh, again, it's a question of if you're doing this via like software API stuff, you can do it, you know, that way. Otherwise, if you're just doing it, I don't know, by some sort of very big Excel sheets, yeah, just do a refund rate, right? It's not, uh, it's not worth the extra effort. I want to introduce Cellcore to all my listeners. As you all know, it's essential to add another selling channel to Amazon. Even though Walmart is the natural addition, you need the know-how to hit the ground running. Cellcord is a Walmart-approved agency for launching and scaling Amazon brands on Walmart and even getting you into Walmart stores. They manage over 400 brands and 100,000 products. They were kind enough to offer my listeners a free comprehensive audit and a $500 statement credit. Visit www.cellcord.co forward slash legends and mention Amazon Legends to activate this offer. But do it quickly because this offer may not last long. www.cellcord.co forward slash legends okay uh what about the big one the advertising the ppc costs yeah, and everything yeah so how do they get factored into yeah so um i guess there's there's sort of two two ways of doing it number one you could just um reduce the ltv by the ppc costs we prefer to look at it as the other side of the coin which is the metric i mentioned right at the top which is customer acquisition cost Right. Okay. And so for us, the PPC or all the advertising stuff will get calculated in the CAC. And ultimately what you're doing is you're subtracting the CAC from the LTV. You're saying LTV minus CAC, right? So when you talk about an LTV, um, in a strict sense, it should be after your customer acquisition costs, right? Once after you've recouped everything you've spent to acquire the customer, then how profitable is that customer? Okay. So you have walked right into what I wanted to talk about <laughs> because that's the, uh, the structure, right? So on one side, you have your lifetime value yeah. and on the other side, you have your cost to acquire that particular customer. And yes. that's the advertising and not necessarily just your PPC. It's, it's all your advertising efforts. Going yes. So, so this, is, this is also a very tricky conversation because uh, the most simplistic way is this idea of you know, how much did I spend in, in advertising to acquire a customer, which is to say, let's add up all the ad spend for, let's say, I don't know, sponsored brand, sponsored display, sponsored brand video, sponsored products. If you're running DSP, right, put that in um, and then divide that by the number of new to brand customers for that month or for that period, right? So yes, that's, I think, is a decent way to do it. 
then you can certainly get a lot more complicated, I guess, which is some people will call it like a fully loaded uh, customer acquisition cost. Because ultimately, if you think conceptually, you're trying to capture all the costs associated with acquiring a customer. And so, yes, advertising, like the actual media costs are one part, but ultimately you're paying people when using technology also to help with acquiring customers, right? So should you include the costs of your PPC software if you're using it? Should you include the cost of people's salaries or the agency costs if you're using an agency? Because what are they doing? Most of the time, you know, they're pretty much about acquiring customers. So you can get into the weeds and you can ask 10 people for 10 and they'll give you 10 different definitions. Um, I think a, a decent starting point is, is just to say, keep it simple, which is to say, let's just add up all the you know, actual media costs, the ad costs, divide that by the number of new to brand customers. And that's telling you how much do I have to spend in PPC uh, to acquire a new customer? Okay. So, uh, yes. So, I mean, I, those are all things, <laughs> frankly, um, the same approach applies to calculating your fulfillment cost if you were fulfilling it yourself. Because uh, one order, mm. uh, people think that, oh, it's it's going to cost me, I ship by USPS and uh, mine is no more than a pound. Well, I mean, it's going to cost me $5.50. Well, no, it's not. What about your warehouse? And then what about the rent and the insurance, right? So they exactly. all... Uh, so, uh, but going back to customer acquisition cost. So yeah. I think it's fair to, for listeners to say to themselves, okay, I'm going to have two different numbers. One is going to be just bare spending on bringing visitors so that they can become a customer for me. The other is with everything else, with the agency fees and whatever they decide and they can contribute. Yeah. So, um but I want to define the calculation again. The calculation sure. is let's focus on the bare uh, minimum customer yes. acquisition cost. And that's the uh, paid advertising all added up per ASIN. Yes. Because if you want to, if you, um, if you want to analyze the, let's say the lifetime value on a per ASIN basis, then you also got to look at, you know, like for like, you got to measure measure that against the CAC on the per person basis. So on the CAC side, it's simply going to be sponsor brands, sponsor brand video, sponsor products, sponsor display per ASIN per month, let's say. And you're going to divide that by the number of new to brand customers who bought that ASIN, who, who for their first purchase bought that ASIN. Okay. Advertising spend is not always possible per ASIN. On the yes. sponsored brands, uh, on the sponsored product, yes. But uh, so, yeah. how do you deal with those? That yeah, you can possible? you can weight them. You can weight them like sales weighted or spend weighted, etc. Across the three ASINs, let's say on sponsored brands, things like that. Again, it's um, th there's an issue, not issue, it's just a, a question of materiality there. Like if your customer acquisition cost is you know ten dollars and it goes to ten dollars and seven cents. You know, that's not, again not going to really materially change the, the 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 calculation there. But so what we would do is historically what we've typically done is just take it like um, either spend weighted or sales weighted across the three ASINs and sponsored brands, for instance. So we kind of shifted a little bit, uh, and I want to make sure that we are keeping things in the right kind of silos, so to speak, so that we can yeah. compare. So customer acquisition cost is total paid ads divided by 
new customers acquired during that month. So yes, yes, and of course, it's not instant because you may be spending on the on the twenty ninth and thirtieth and thirty first of the month, but the customers don't show up until the following. Yeah, you just yeah. simply go so by the attribute- calendar month. Yeah, I mean, you could do things with the attribution window there as well, for sure. And also, Amazon's a little bit inconsistent on their attribution windows as well, right? So you've got 14 days for, I don't know, DSP, and you've got seven days for sponsored products. You know, the, uh, the API, actually, if you really want to get into the weeds, the API, can you can change that, right? You can actually say, for sponsored products, I want to use 14 days. But anyway, um, yes, yeah, so you could run into some attribution period or win- window issues there. But um there's another, I think, probably even bigger issue to talk about, which is when you're talking about advertise ad spend, should you also be including you want you want firstly you want to subtract out remarketing budgets, right? So mm-hmm. um that's got nothing to do with by definition <laughs> with, with new customer acquisition. So you want to subtract out that. You also want to be subtracting, and this 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 is the part that gets a little bit fuzzy, I would I would say. Um, what do you do with branded terms? Because in general, you know, how many um, non-branded terms, it's kind of safe to say that those are very targeted towards new to brand acquisition, right? People just searching for, I don't know, best vitamin A supplements or whatever it is, right? Um, If people are searching for specific brands, they could be new to brand, but there's also a very high chance that they're not new to brand. They've bought it before and they want to buy it again so they can... There's a few journeys they can take if you want to make a repeat order. You can go into your order history and buy again, which is actually what I do. Um, you can subscribe and save, I guess, right, to, for a bunch of these ones. Or you could just put the, you know, the brand determine, right, and, and search for it and buy it that way around. Um, and the uh, biggest frustration I've had, whenever I talk to the Amazon Ads API team for years now, it's always, always been, there's been no actual way to connect the, the ads data to the retail data in that very, very specific way. So you can't actually say this very, very specific ad, uh, you know, converted at this very specific time, and therefore we can match it to this very specific order. Um, and so probably getting a little bit too much into the weeds with all of this, but that basically means you're left with like these um, branded terms, which you're not quite sure what to do with them. Are they, how much of that is new to brand and how much of it isn't? Um, remarketing is safe to say you can remove that non-branded it's safe to say you should include that but then the middle ground is kind of what do you do with branded um, the amazon marketing cloud interestingly is starting to solve some of these problems because on the amc for those listeners i guess the amazon marketing cloud is sort of a new product but it's it's um, really interesting that it can um, it's not exactly tying the dots that it was this ad in this specific order ID, but you can get a better sense of that middle ground there around um, how many of my uh, branded terms are contributing to new to brand versus repeats. So it's a very long way of, of, of me answering your question. But when, when you talk about all your ad spend, it's not always the case that it's all your ad spend. <laughs> yes, yes. So some of them. Uh, okay, so let's break it down. So first of all, Sponsored brands, sponsored products, and then you you have the, all the all those different programs. Some of which are not reporting by skew. You just have you yeah. have to include them in the calculation, except that you have to yeah. prorate or whatever the case may be sure. per per, uh, per skew. But uh, again, this is not a skew based calculation in the sense Correct. that this Correct. is about the customer, customer. base. Yeah. What you're looking at is what is your total ad spend. 
And, and what you're going to do is you have to be tracking how many customers you had on the books at the beginning of the month and how many customers you have on the books at the end of the month. Whatever the difference is, those are the ones that are new customers you acquired by that spending. So you divide that total by the number of customers. That's your customer acquisition cost during that month. Right? Yes. So there's, there's certainly one way to do it. Or if you, again, if you're doing it via the API, you will know whether someone's new to brand when they place the order on yes. the third or whatever right. as well. Right. It's literally yeah, yeah. has, here's like a unique, uh, you know, ID or something for that individual. Have I seen this person before? The answer is no, they're going to be new to brand. Right. So yeah. you don't have to do that subtraction, but that's definitely just another way of doing no, it. I, you know, uh, right. I'm old school. I'd like to know the formula. <laughs> calculation and then i'll let somebody give it to me but i'll from time to time i'll go back and check fair enough so, it's always a good way to test uh you know if, if you're getting it yeah. so yeah for sure um okay now in that calculation of the total paid uh, spend retargeting completely excluded just like refunds need to be excluded because yeah. they are your controllable inputs, so to speak, that yes. that you may not may not always be there. So, yeah. what is your bare advertising? Yeah, and, and the objective the objective is is totally different. You're not trying to get you're not trying to acquire a new customer. You're trying to get an existing customer to buy again, right? And so, it's not about customer acquisition cost. You can we can chat about if you want something like um, the cost of retention or you know some, something like that, right? Which ultimately well, I mean, this this thing is this so. I go to Amazon and I look at stuff and I don't buy it. Well, guess what? I'm seeing that item. I haven't yet bought. So, but that's retargeting, no? So it's bringing me back. Yes. So, so I guess there's there. just a, there's a clarification of what I guess maybe we're talking past each other a little bit. So you've got different options when you want to do remarketing or retargeting. Like there's definitely an option to say, go target people who, have looked at my product and haven't bought it or add it to cart, but didn't buy it. Right. So try, try just get them to buy that. That should be obviously counted towards new to brand, right? right. Because it's a different, I'm talking about remarketing in the sense of someone has bought and I want to go okay. get so, them to buy again. Okay. <laughs> you know, the devil is on the details. Yeah. And that's, that's a good point. It's a good distinction to make. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so let's now define this uh, retargeting. Include remarketing exclude. Yes, if we if by retargeting you mean um, people who have shown some interest but not actually bought the product at all, sure, right. absolutely okay, include. Because cool. okay, it's, so, it's everything. It's everything to do with acquiring a customer. So yes, that's absolutely part of acquiring a new customer. Okay, so when you approach it this way, it really doesn't matter whether uh, it's. The, the, the numbers are at skew level or not. You can look at your total advertising, paid advertising, and then subtract the, the remarketing piece. Yeah. And then whatever is left, divide by number of new customers you acquired that month. That's your customer acquisition course, right? Uh, yes. Yes. And it brings up it brings up another question because when and this comes up quite a lot, which is to say when you're analyzing a lifetime value, what does it mean to say um to filter by a particular ASIN. So let's say I want to look at the LTV, but now I'm looking at ASIN, I don't know, my, my whatever you want to call it, right? My, my 30 day vitamin A supplement. So in, in our world, and again, this is perhaps a judgment call, but in our world, what we would say is when you filter for an ASIN in this analysis, 
you're filtering by the first order or the first purchase only. So what we're saying is that someone was new to brand and they bought this vitamin A as their first purchase, but that's it. They could have bought vitamin A or vitamin B, C, and D as the second, third, and fourth order. That's it. Mm-hmm. Right? Nice. Because, because again, you're after the customer level and the cust- analysis and the customer journey, not an ASIN level. If you want a repeat order rate for an ASIN, sure, like that's a different metric and we can talk about whether that's useful. But a lot of the time you're not, unless you're a very, very strong, like subscribe and save type uh, brand, a lot of people are just buying different things, right, from you. And you're not capturing that with an ASIN repeat order rate. This is very, very different. This is a customer level analysis. And so, again, when you're in, when you're in a dashboard or when you're thinking about the analysis and you want to say like, okay, what does it mean to say, I want to filter by this ASIN? It's In our world, it's simply saying we're filtering by the first order was that ASIN but no guarantees what they bought next. <laughs> so to bring this back to the CAC side, um, that's why when when um, on the customer acquisition cost, when you're doing this per ASIN, um, you can actually match those two, right? You can subtract the CAC from the LTV because they're both going to be f- for that same ASIN because it's only for that first order. Right. I mean, that is really honing in on what really matters to you. So yeah. Uh, yeah. you are measuring the LTV at ASIN level as well as customer and then you're measuring the customer acquisition cost at ASIN and customer level. And then you can see yeah, married yeah. the two. And then maybe these decisions, so this was going to be uh, just a few more minutes. We covered this uh, before we wrap up uh, was, okay, what do you do with this? So what is the relationship yeah. and what are the actions to take? Yes. Uh, share with us some of those because there's many, you know, there's as many. <laughs> Ultimately, yeah. there are two numbers we are comparing against each other yeah. and the different scenarios come out of those two numbers. And then what do you do in those scenarios? Yes. So share yeah. with us some of your thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. So um, generally speaking, I would say most brands would fall on a spectrum, which is um, on the one hand, you can be very, let's say, growth focused and your focus is to, um, let's say gross sales or volumes um, and new to brand customers. And on the other side, you can be very profitability focused, right? And what that means is you're going to have how much to focus on growing repeat orders and how much to focus on new to brand acquisition, right? That, those, are, those are kind of, I guess, conceptually is like, well, what's the right ratio of new to brands to repeats or repeats to new to brands? If you're very profitability focused, the majority of your orders should come from repeats, right? Mm. I've seen businesses where 80, 85% of all orders are just repeats. And mm. on the one hand, that is, they're super profitable, right? And they're not paying for most of those repeat orders because they're subscribing saves or, you know, you're not, you're not, you don't have to show ads to them, right? They're just kind of doing that. Um, but then there's obviously a question too of where's future growth going to actually come from, right? And so you don't want to go too far over into, um, repeats and, and and all of that because then there's a question of well yeah you know what if something happens uh, where's future growth coming from on the other side if you are in one of those categories that should have a lot of repeat orders but you're too growth focused meaning for every 10 customers you get if every 10 customers that buy from you in a month nine of them are new to brand and only one's a repeat that's a very leaky bucket as we say right and that is not sustainable because you're going to have to you you have to acquire so many customers all the time at a great expense 
and hardly any of them, are, you know, are coming back effectively. So those are just like setting the the goalposts, right? Of like you're going to be somewhere in, in in that sort of spectrum. So it really depends on each individual brand how much emphasis you want to put on profitability versus growth. What is the right ratio of new brands to repeats that you actually want buying from you in any given month, right? And 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 it's a trajectory. I mean, the easy answer is to say, well you know, the best ones I've seen kind of do both, right? There's month-on-month growth of repeats. There's also month-on-month growth of, of new to brands. Um, but, you know, that's, that's I guess, pretty rare. But also what I've seen is a, is a, a really good strategy is um, even within your own catalog, you can have different objectives, meaning the hero ASINs, let's just focus on profitability. Let's just get, you know, as many repeat orders and subscribe and saves or whatever it may be, and maybe 70, 80% of all the revenues coming from, um from repeats for those hero ASINs, but for the sort of second tier ASINs and all the rest of them, let's go focus on new brands for them and build them up, right? And so, like that's that's kind of the way um, I would look at I would look at um, at doing that. But fundamentally, if you are in that growth objective, the most powerful thing that a lifetime value allows you to do is to not break even on the first order, right? It gives you the numbers behind and the comfort that you know. That if you want to pursue a strategy to say, I only want to break even on the second order, and that might take me three months, this is what it means. This is how much I can now pay to acquire a customer, and this is what it translates to in terms of a ROAS or an ACoS. So let's say, for instance, on the first order, you know your your break even ACoS is thirty percent, right? But after three months, that's now jumped to fifty percent because. Some of your customers are coming back, right? And some of them are coming back within three months um, and you're making a profit. That all of a sudden, now, you know, what do you do if your break-even ACoS has gone from 30 to 50%? Well, you've got so much more freedom um, to be to, to pursue all sorts of different things, right? You can obviously afford to pay uh, much higher CPCs, right? You can compete for terms that probably would have been out of reach if you want to break even on the first order only. Um, you can invest in higher up the funnel things like sponsor brand video or DSP or whatever it may be. You've just got so much more room to work with um, now that you are breaking even on the second order. And you've got all, as I said, you've got all the numbers behind that that it checks out and here are the targets. I regularly come across businesses that their break even ACoS is over 100% at the six month mark, right? So it's, their target ACoS is like 120% because. Yeah, uh, they, uh, but they've got to wait six months. Now, the, the the trade-off, of course, is if you're having to wait longer to break even, that obviously affects your your bank balance, right? Your balance sheet, your sure. cash balance, you right? Mean. And so, Exactly. So, you know, anyone who runs a business that's, you know, cash is king and all of that sort of stuff. So it's very rare for us, at least, to recommend breaking even on like six months or 12 months or anything like that. It's always just, just start off at three months, um, chances are your competitors not doing this sort of analysis and you're already having a big jump, right? 30 to 50% in terms of an ACoS. And you can do so much more with that, right? You've got all that freedom now in terms of your keyword strategy and and, and the rest of it. So I think that's probably one of the biggest um, uses, let's say, of, of, of lifetime value and customer acquisition cost. Yeah. I mean, look, at the end of the day, what you are saying is, well, if I have X number of customers, this is how much they are worth to me. And then I'm going to spend so much of it in bringing so many on board. And and then you can look at it and see where that's going to leave you. And then yes. if it's not enough, you have to look at the situation. Yeah. And uh, and of course, some of those that, that, that you are able to bring back, 
that will increase the lifetime value at zero cost because there is no acquisition cost for them anymore. So it's a nice mix. Yes. Uh, and I guess, again, the answer is uh, which one of these is right. Well, it depends on where you are in your journey as a company. Yeah. If you are at the beginning, yeah. you are acquiring. If you are like somewhat mature, you really ought to be retaining and increasing yes. the value. So, yeah, the most successful and biggest businesses are going to have really good customer loyalty, right? I mean, that's that's not a that's not a particularly surprise. Yeah, it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone, yeah. right? The, the the biggest brands are the ones with the most loyal customers. I mean, if you think of I don't know what's my lifetime value with like Apple or something. I mean, it's it's. I hate to actually think of what that number would be, right? Um, so yeah, I mean that's how you build success, really big and successful businesses. It's as I said right at the top of the call. Um, if it's about brand building, which we think it is, then your one of your most valuable assets are your loyal customers, and yeah, exactly. that's measured by repeat orders, really. Um, so yeah, I mean you know the whole Amazon world is. And this is, I blame Amazon for this, right? They don't give you the data, um, but it's they're all focused on like what happens on the first order. Right. And that's just not reflective of the business if you're in one of these categories. It just isn't, right? It's stuff that people buy again. Amazon's yeah, but, but, fa failed wait, these sellers, wait right? Wait a minute. Yeah. Wait, wait a minute. Amazon is not playing that game. Amazon is playing the game of bring it, bringing yes. that customer back to Amazon. Amazon. So Amazon's Amazon's maximizing Amazon's right. lifetime value. Exactly. Right? I mean, think about Amazon's Absolutely. lifetime customer value. 100%. So Amazon <laughs> Amazon for sure is all about maximizing their LTV, right? Like as rail, how many times? They couldn't care really which brands I buy from as long as I'm coming back and buying again and maximizing that LTV. So yes, it's a completely different like optimization problem around their LTV and not the individual seller's yeah. LTV. Well, in fact, <laughs> the founder of Zappos, you're familiar yes. with the story. That yes. he, he's another case study that completely made the case. In fact, I saw him. Yes, he was super aggressive with that stuff. I remember, well, yeah. I saw him at an, at an event. You know, this guy uh, was real spiritual kind of guy where yeah. he was completely <laughs> committed to what he believed in. Yes. And and you could tell the the kind of uh, emotional scars that he received in defending wow. against investors, and and sure enough, of course, it paid off. So, well, just as I expected, it's a delicious conversation which can go <laughs> on forever between you and me. Um, so, but uh, we're gonna have to wrap up the business conversation here. I want to move on to getting to know you because someone who has this kind of uh, knowledge and <laughs> interest who is Rael Klein is what I want to know. So take us back to your beginning. So tell us, where did you grow up? Yeah. And share with us some of your life experiences. Yeah, sure. So I, um, I grew up in Johannesburg in South Africa. So I spent the first 20-something, 20 23-ish uh, years of my life in, um, in in Johannesburg in South Africa. So interesting, I guess, time growing up in really the 90s, I guess, and, and sort of early 2000s. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, my father, um, pretty entrepreneurial. He's um, sort of, I guess, as a life insurance broker, but then got into just sort of general um, financial advisory type stuff. But he he struck out on his own on his own at a pretty young age, right? Two young kids and, you know, very much of the this sort of attitude that to 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 go it alone and the freedom 
and hard work <laughs> that comes with that, right? Um, juxtaposed against each other there. But, um, you know, but it very much instilled in me that um, I should be thinking about, you know, doing my own things. Um, I mean, obviously sort of support me in, in whatever I chose to do, but like very much prepared me for, and, and he would share a lot of the stories with me around some of the decisions he had to make as, you know, as an entrepreneur and, and striking out on his own and building his own customer base and when people losing big accounts and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So, um, you know, pretty transparent with me on all of that. And um, yeah, I mean, you know, that was something that um, I think instilled in me in my teenage years. I went off then, uh, I did an undergrad in finance and economics um, in South Africa, uh, in Johannesburg. I nearly studied a PhD <laughs> in that. And thank goodness, thank goodness I did not, I can tell you. Um, I think that was, you know, people think some of the, be the, the best decisions in your life was what you decide not to do, never mind what you do do. But um, <laughs> I didn't do that. But I did come in 2010. Well, uh, sorry, then after, after studying um, in South Africa, the undergrad of finance economics, I, I did work in private equity and, and sort of very sort of financy, lived in sort of spreadsheet type type jobs wasn't really machine learning around in those days. So uh, you're running Monte Carlo simulations, I guess, in Excel, <laughs> as, as, as sophisticated as you can get there, which is, which is interesting. But um, I then went and studied in Cambridge in the UK. I did a master's in finance um, in, in Cambridge in the UK. So again, this is not really entrepreneurial, right? This is probably the opposite of that. Um, where typically if you're going to do something like that, you are going to join, I don't know, a private equity company or a bank or a central bank or whatever, just stick in finance, right? Um, but it's really interesting. So I finished uh, I finished the master's in finance there and then just ditched finance altogether, got out of, <laughs> got out of finance altogether. I mean, part of it was like pull, part of it was push. Pull meaning that's always something I wanted to do to kind of struck out on my own. Uh, but the push side of it was also pretty strong. I'm not going to pretend about that, which is it was a terrible time to look for a job in in, in finance in, what was it, 2011. It was a European sovereign debt crisis and people couldn't find jobs and all sorts of things going on, in, at least in Europe at that time. Um, and I just, yeah, basically, long story short, I came across online advertising, specifically programmatic advertising. Now, this is a world where computer algorithms in real time, literally milliseconds, uh, place a, a bid in a live auction to show an ad to someone. So as a user, you go to a website, whilst the page is learning, what's actually happening behind the scenes is thousands or billions of times a second, honestly, across the world, um, computer algorithms are submitting bids in auctions to show an ad. So the winner's chosen, user's ad gets shown to you end-to-end -end milliseconds. I mean, it's, it's quite incredible, that infrastructure. But what's interesting from my point of view was coming from a finance background, the finance industry had been doing stuff like this for decades right computer algorithms to buy sell stuff in, in real time so for me it was um again i'm probably getting my nerdy side out here um, and way into the weeds but what i was really interested in is to find out whether we can actually um provide derivative products for online advertising <laughs> so i don't know how many of your listeners are even familiar with this weird world of derivatives but it's basically stuff like uh i pay you a small fee today and at some point, in, and at a point in the future, I have the option of buying something in the future, right? Or of selling something in the in the future, or it could be just straight out. I promise to buy something for this price in twelve months' time. 
mm. or sell something for this price. Anyway, the online ad industry was very sort of real time and we were looking to bring it into forwards and futures and options and all these sort of things on the derivative side. Anyway, long story short, I was trying to, I keep saying long story short, but um, I was Googling who else is kind of looking at this intersection of finance and online advertising, two industries really that had never overlapped, right, in any way. Um, and I came across a computer science professor at UCL, University College London, who was all about applying uh, financial techniques to online advertising, a whole bunch of research in applying portfolio theory and all sorts of things in online ads. Um, so I got together with him. We decided to spin out of the computer science department, uh, a company called Media Gamma. And Media Gamma, at least in the beginning, was trying to do these things, right? Like, can we go, because think about it, if you're doing a product launch, and this is, I guess, one of the use cases, if you're doing a product launch, that's say in six months time, in some point in the future, six, 12 months time, how do you reserve that space upfront, right? And what happens if that launch is delayed, right? Remember, some of these things are like the option to do this, you're not obligated to do this. And so it builds in that flexibility um, to do that. And so there's all sorts of reasons why um, even as a publisher, if you're on the other side, you're hosting the website, you're a news website, you know, you can, again, have an, an additional revenue streams. So um, we decided that was actually too tough <laughs> to do. And it's funny because if I look back at like my original pitch deck and, you know, all that kind of stuff, it's just wrong in so many ways. <laughs> um, you know, you've got like hedging charts and like just ridiculous, right? Uh, it's not exclusive to you, Rael. You know, when you first come up with the idea, it's <laughs> all kinds of things. Yeah, I mean, like a, two sort of, you know, a computer science professor and then and then a data guy like me or something trying to tell a story, you know, on, on, like pitching. It's just, it's not going to end well, right? So anyway, um, what we what we ended up doing ultimately is building custom bidding and selling algorithms for um, for online advertising, right? And so what price should I pay? What price should I submit in this auction? Or if you're on the other side or you're on the publisher side, you're you know hosting the website, what reserve price should I have in this auction? So a bunch of computer science, PhD level computer scientists um, doing all of this sort of stuff. And we built a business called Media Gamma. Um, and we are most successful, and this is the sort of, I guess, tying with Nozzle eventually, our most successful customers were the mobile gaming companies because they were incredibly quantitative and they were interested in lifetime value, right? Because what would, when you think about, well, we're back to customer acquisition cost and, and lifetime value, because when you want to submit a bid in an auction, it all depends on how valuable you think that person is going to be if they can convert. And how do you know how valuable someone is? Well, we would get the data from the mobile companies saying, here's the three-month LTV or the six-month LTV. So like, here's the feedback that you need in order to improve the algorithm, right? Like how valuable were these people ultimately? And so we sold that business in, well, it was the pandemic, right? What was it? It was July of 2020 to a company called Beeswax, a New York-based company. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, I came, you know, coming across the Amazon um, ecosystem where it's possible to sort of do variations on the theme there ultimately, right? You've got the data to do the LTV. You've got some of the customer acquisition. Well, you can do the customer acquisition cost side too. Um, and this is not really being adopted or leveraged by the Amazon ecosystem. This is 2020, right? Yeah, 2020. And um, yeah, and, and, and therefore, you know, that's the opportunity of Nozzle. Like Amazon's investing a lot in the API ecosystem, into the ads and retail APIs and all that sort of stuff. 
But if you compare the Amazon sellers, I guess, to like what the D2C community have known for a long time, like this idea of not breaking even on the first order is forced upon them, I guess, years ago in the D2C yeah. world, because it's just the customer acquisition costs are way too high anyway, right? And so, yeah, I mean, that's kind of our opportunity ultimately. So, you know, obviously you're very passionate about numbers and uh, you spent <laughs> your whole life. But one thing that I, I picked up as a common thread is it's all numbers starting from your father, because your father was selling life insurance. What is that? It's, it's all numbers, right? So he's dealing with numbers. Actuaries, then, yes. Yeah, and then moving into financial <laughs> services, and that, yeah. that's also numbers. Yeah. So uh, is that something that was part of the environment growing up in at home, always dealing with numbers? Yeah, it's interesting you say that because you're absolutely right. That's you know a common theme. But my father's actually not a numbers person. He's much more a people's person. And I think that's also what taught me an important lesson um, and this is the first time I, I guess I'm kind of clicking or thinking about it, which is you can have all the numbers in the world, right? But if you're not a, if you can't get on with people and you're not a people's person or any of that sort of stuff, right? Like so much of it is on trust, particularly in financial services, right? And if you're not able to tick that box in a meaningful way, then you're not going to be successful either, either right? It's underpinned by all the numbers, but at the end of the day, someone's still got to, you know, you still have to be a good person. You still got to build trust with people. And when things go wrong, you know, I think people judge you when it's easy to judge people when things go right, but when things go wrong is ultimately when you should <laughs> judge, how do people react? Right. And I think that's also a really important lesson that he taught me um, is, you know, when, when, when things go wrong, what do you do? Or there's a fight with a claim that you're making in the insurance and against the insurance company, it might not be worth your while as an individual financial services advisor to like spend a lot of time trying to fight for it, but is it the right thing to do? Right. Yeah. You know, that stuff like that. So I think it's actually interesting. He was more of that person than sort of the underlying numbers as well. So how would you say you compare to your father? Um, well, I'm probably skewed more on the numbers side. Uh, I'd like to think that uh, I can get along with people. But <laughs> I don't know. We'll, we'll, the jury's out maybe a bit on that. But I think, he, you know, he's probably, yeah. I mean, I'd say he's better with um people right ultimately so, you know your story about your father reminded me and, and and your example about what happens when you you judge when you fail it's two things uh one of them is the book called good to great and have you have you read that book? i haven't no oh i highly recommend it yeah and you check will, it out you will especially uh, like it and so basically the the concept is this um, it's uh, Jim Collins wrote this book and he took um, I forget the number I think uh, 25 companies 25 companies that are high growth and but these are not companies that people know about and we're talking about stock market you know, public. Right. so yeah. nobody knows nobody knows these are public companies extremely successful and as yet they are not on anybody's radar screen and then he created what he calls uh, comparison companies. And these are companies that are in these same exact same industries that everybody knows about. Ah. But their growth rate is nowhere near. Right. So, Interesting. So you've got these high growth companies <laughs> and the comparison companies. Yeah. And then he studied. And then from that, he drew conclusions on 
what makes a good company interesting company a great company yeah so and one of them was of course everything comes down to leadership but also culture and a few other things that i'm yeah. not going to get into but uh, the, the part about the leadership so he said that the comparison companies were the ceos when the company did really well he would be on tv radio talking about everything and yeah. and then taking credit uh, when things went bad bad <laughs> Spokespeople were <laughs> get, the, get the lawyers to deal with it or something. Yeah, CEO would always be behind the scenes when things went great, but he was always yeah. in the forefront when things. Very happened. interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a good. That's, that's a good lesson. I, I like that. I remember the you Very know, good. your conversation. The other one is is a is I think is a nice ending which ties to what your father's uh, example was for you, and that is from the movie A Beautiful Mind. I'm sure you've seen the movie. I it was a very long time ago, so I probably don't remember what you're about to say. So but yes, if you remember, <laughs> right at the very end, he's accepting the Nobel Prize. He gives a speech, and his wife is sitting in the audience, of course, and. He says, all my life, I look for solutions. And I looked at the numbers. So I look for solutions in numbers. Solutions to everything. Solutions to life. He says, what I realized years later, that the only solution that I needed was sitting right next to me. And he looks oh, amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, so, it's, 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 easy, it's easy to forget how emotional you know, creatures, what emotional creatures we are, you know, ultimately are, right? So 100%. Yeah. yeah. Really interesting. So, well, I love the conversation. Yes. Thank you. Well, so tell us how can people reach you uh, and, you know, share your contact information with us. Yeah. I guess my email address is rail.klein, R-A-E-L dot C-L-I-N-E at nozzle.ai. Uh, LinkedIn, very responsive on LinkedIn as well. So you can just look me up there. Um, very happy to have... These conversations, as you can tell, I'm quite, um, I guess, passionate about that. So um, if you've got questions, queries, alternate ways of doing things, better ways of doing things, uh, critiques, any of those sort of things, totally open to all of that. So I would love to hear from you. <laughs> Thank you. And of course, anybody who wants to sign up, they can go to nozzle.ai and, and, and sign up. Yeah, so there's, a, there's a free 14-day trial as well. So you can just, um, yeah, I mean, and if you just message me and say I've signed up, I'm happy to have a call with you just to go through the numbers and stuff as well. No problem. Great. Thank you, Raul. Thank you very much. Great uh, conversation. And um, and everybody, pay attention to these numbers. Go <laughs> sign up for Nozzle.ai because you can't live without it. Thank you so much for having me, Nick. It's been great. Before I wrap up, I want to remind everyone to visit www.cellcore.co forward slash legends and mention Amazon legends to get a free comprehensive audit and a $500 statement credit. It's time to conquer Walmart with Cellcord by your side. Also, don't forget to get your winning product detail page from mindfulgoods.co and get up to 600% boost in your sales. You will get $100 off the service. Visit www.mindfulgoods.co forward slash legends and enter the code Amazon Legends 
to enjoy your $100 off. Thank you. And this brings us to the end of another episode. And I'll see you on the next one. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the episode and share it with someone you think would benefit from it too.